This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk on a beautiful, picture-perfect August Wednesday morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, collaborator, and colleague, Shane Jensen. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. I wish our other colleagues, Audie and Eric, were here this morning so I could I feel like my gloating is wasted on my baseball gloating is wasted on you a little bit. I mean, you're you're very supportive of it, but the shine that I've got, I feel like, was really intended for other people. Yeah, exactly. I I kind of feel like. Well, uh, our Yankee loving brethren are out and about. Yeah, this week they'll be back. You'll have a chance. You'll have a chance. Just to coincidentally float. avoiding this week. Yeah, they might. It might not be unrelated to events recently occurring on the baseball diamond. Yeah. Might 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 not be unrelated. We're going to be here. Me and Shane are going to be here for the next two hours. You guys can join us. Phone number is one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. One eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Email is another way you can reach us. Business radio at SiriusXM dot com. Business radio at SiriusXM dot com. Or add us on Twitter. We're at at W Moneyball. Handle is at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet on occasion. We take your questions and observations. You got over-under suggestions for us. We'll have an over-under segment at the end of the show as usual. But you can reach us any of those ways. We have a couple of guests as usual this week, bottom of this hour, top of next hour. But between now and then, open lines. Shane Jensen, sir, what has caught your eye in the world of sports lately? Well, I, and I, I mean, I think baseball is is the short answer. Uh, baseball is going team, real when, well right now. When your um, team is, is when good, your team is just, I mean, just they're, they're winning it. at like a seven hundred pace. Then you have to really kind of sit down and pay attention to that. Yeah, just um, kind of kind of bathe in it. Just kind of yeah, yeah, yourself. really, really say, kind of soak it up. Uh, besides baseball, I'm starting to think about football. Are you start? Have you been starting to think about football, dude? I was on. I was in the middle of football yesterday. I oh, was, nice. I was on a training camp sideline yesterday. What? Was, yes, absolutely. It was fantastic. It, they're playing football right now. It's yeah. a real thing. It's happening. Uh, yeah. Was that around but, here? Or are you even allowed yeah, to say? Yeah. Or? No. No. This is just a casual thing. I've, I know some guys down at uh, with the Ravens, and they were practicing with the Rams. So oh, you, it was wow. a two for one kind of thing. You get to catch instead of yeah. just one team. They had fans out. They had music. It was kind of a little bit bit of a thing, and uh, got to got to stand right there and be close to the action. And uh, it's just fun, just fun to be around football. They were having fun. You know, you bring in another team, and it adds. You know, the competitive bit goes up a bit. Yeah, but it's, but it's not serious, you know. So they're like talking smack and having fun. Everybody was fired. I mean, up. It, that, that's it, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I, it must be pretty serious for a lot of play. I like, like for like, you know, I mean, you know, somebody like that's Joe right. Flacco probably feels well. I mean, maybe he doesn't specifically feel all that secure this year, but I mean, like he, he's he's not he's gonna he's not on the roster bubble, right? So that's right. So no, for the players guys, that are, I wonder how uh, can you notice right. like in a difference in intensity or anything like that among players that are actually like fighting for their jobs versus just kind of 
getting loose for the season. Yeah, so, you know, people with a more sophisticated eye than mine might be able to. I mean, these guys, they're 90-man rosters right now on yeah. the way to 53, right? So, you know, a big chunk of these guys, 37 of these guys are on each team yep. are going to be cut before the end of the preseason. So there are a lot of guys that, you know, the the guys on staff, you know, they, 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 they can't play. and They, they yeah. know they can't play. But you know you're seeing a fair bit of like one on ones, mm-hmm. twos on twos kind of things, and and that's most of what you see in the drills. You see guys go a little deeper, but you know, so the one on ones, these are starters going against yeah. each other, and they're having fun, and they're talking smack, and their sidelines get fired up sometimes, and it was just it was it was real good energy. I think it's good for the team because a couple weeks into. You know, the dregs of summer yeah. camp. You need a little change of pace. Yeah, no, and I mean, I actually heard a little vignette from the Patriots training camp as well. And, of course, we all know the Patriots are the no-fun team. These guys are just always serious and, you know, not having any fun at all. But they actually switched up offense and defense at, like, the goal line for, what like, a series or what something that like mean? that. Like, offense like their whole, defense? Like, their regular, yeah, their regular, no. like, like Tom Brady was at safety. <laughs> I hope he was, like, um, and, in uh, the corner of the end zone sitting down. Yeah, I can't remember their safety. I can't remember the Patriots' safety it was a like quarterback or something like that. And they did an entire like you know like a oh, few fun. few plays. Yeah, that's uh, the, fun. D- the defense failed to punch it in on the offense, as it turns out. That's a little surprising. Yeah. I wish I would have bet on the defense in that yeah, situation. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, the, the for, you know, former defense playing hand, offense. handed to like a linebacker and just watch him run it in or something like that. Totally. But, I mean, who on the offense is going to get? I mean, yeah. Brady no, is I mean, not playing. Hogan broke up. I had had an amazing play breaking up a pass apparently and stuff. So that's you know well, some yeah. of those guys used to play two ways. Back, yeah, those guys coming out of high school play two ways, and so they probably oh, missed, they you know, I've, I've, to do you it. know, we've in in relatively recent memory. I mean, Troy Brown did this for the Patriots. I'm sure other teams have had these kind of like versatile enough players. Well, they'll occasionally yeah. play a series on defense if yeah. there's a shorthanded situation or something right. like that. Yeah, right. really, they get shorthanded. And, I mean, that sounds like baseball. That sounds like pitching no. I mean, I remember stop. the Patriots like back in like the early 2000s during their kind of first little like dynasty phase. Troy Brown was you know kind of their slot receiver. De jour at the time, and he also would come in on on defensive back. I mean, it said something about their defensive back core. Well, in we've some had seasons. Two, some two way players. So, yeah. um, I mean, Deion Sanders. Yeah, well, I mean, ways, that's right. right. That's uh, right. And who the guy that came out of Michigan a couple years ago? He was running back, edge rusher, linebacker, oh. punt returner. He went to the Browns. Okay. You know him? No, unfortunately. If he goes to the Browns, that he probably drops off my map a little bit. <laughs> typically, right? Mo- That's kind of most people's map. But well, he was a he was probably a Heisman finalist, right. as a college player. He was probably I don't know a second round pick, yeah. second third round pick. Um, and uh, and my question is whether he's playing any two way ball at yeah. the NFL level. Yeah. But you know, I, because I'm a college football fan, I watch these guys get recruited out of high school. And they're forever converting, like, you know, the all-district, second-team, all-state, you know, running back to cornerback. He, you know, they yeah. play, he, he played some DB, right, because yeah, that's yeah. what good athletes do. But then they look at these guys, and some of them are like, you're a better long-term prospect. That's really interesting here. I mean, I mean, like, I would love to be able to follow football closely enough to track that. I do know that that actually ha- – that obviously happens in baseball from sort of the little league point forward that, te- you know – you might, yeah, you, you might come up as like a you know catcher, and they're like, no, no, we're putting you in the outfield or something like that. And yeah. I've even heard like I remember there was this one story. I think it was I was watching like some World Series like many, many, many years ago. I think it was uh, 
maybe either 2004 or 2007 when the Red Sox were playing the Cardinals in the well, – I guess it wouldn't have been 2004 – when the Red Sox was t- playing the St. Louis Cardinals. And there was a, a matchup where Jason Veritek was the, the catcher for the Red Sox and was hitting against Jason Marquis, who was the pitcher for St. Louis. And both those players had played in, like, a Little League World Series against each other. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. And they were both shortstops were or something short, like that. Yeah, yeah. They were both they were. shortstops at the time. No, it's – well, it's really interesting. Well, I've, I've heard I've heard personnel MLB personnel guys talk about the way they think about this, and I, this is probably just common knowledge in baseball. But the the guys the guys who play in the middle can always kind of roll over to the mm-hmm. corners. Yeah. But then the guys who are on the corners, not, they, not, they not as stick, much place for them to yeah, roll. There's That's no right. place else for them to go. So if they get bumped, they're not going to play another position, and if they can't hit, then they're going to be out. Yeah. But the but the most athletic guys, the catcher, shortstop, center fielder, those guys. If they need to, can roll over somewhere else, and and um, because they're typically the most athletic guys. But we, I mean, we know it from growing up because the best player always played shortstop. That's of course. true. <laughs> and, and I guess there are some. There's I mean, Texas has a new recruit this year, a defensive lineman recruit from New Orleans, who was a quarterback. He was an oversized quarterback in high school, and just running over people in like two A or whatever yeah. it was. Michael Williams, I think, is his name. And LSU didn't know what to make of him. Local school didn't know what to make of him, so didn't recruit him very heavily. Texas sees this oversized, great athlete and say, "You know what? You're going to be a good defensive lineman in college." So he is now a redshirt freshman. I mean, he's a true freshman. We'll see what he makes of it. But he was he was playing quarterback last so year. Kind of, yeah, I, I, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Was he enthused about this move? <laughs> I kind of feel like it's, I know it's not the most exciting move, right? Yeah. But I mean, we've seen that it's stunning to me because actually, again, University of Texas has had guys go from like running back to lineman and then on to play lineman in the NFL. So Henry Melton was recruited mm-hmm. and played running yeah. back at Texas before finally late in his career moving over to defensive line. And then right. went to the NFL as a defensive lineman. So this guy, he surely knows. I mean, you don't yeah. see quarterbacks as I don't know how big this guy, maybe 6'3", 240 kind of thing. But he's some 6'3", 240s are maxed out. Some 6'3", 240s are on the way to 300. And, right. And if you're a 300 but you're athletic enough to dominate as a quarterback in high school, that probably means you're going to be a pretty special something if you can play closer to the line. By the way, the, the Wolverine we were talking about, Wolverine come – Cleveland Brown is Jabril Peppers. Oh, yeah. That, that was the name I knew. Yeah, yeah, of course. course. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, so I actually, um, talking about college football and talking about like high school recruits and stuff like that, is that mostly what, as somebody who follows college football closely, is that kind of what you're focused on right now? Or is it sort of more like, you know, looking at the kind of current players? Like, somebody like, because like, Texas has like some. Yeah, I mean, obviously they haven't had the on-field success over the last couple of seasons, but they have had really good recruiting classes. They've had decent recruiting classes somehow. They've kind of hung in there. But last year they had, like, the number three or number four right. in the country, um, which was the best in a while. So, But those guys aren't mostly going to contribute too much. There is, right. a, there is a true freshman who has staked a claim to a starting safety spot down there, and, and that's a pretty decent defensive backfield he's already in. So there's one that is going to mm-hmm. contribute. Some of those guys are going to going to contribute, but mostly you're mostly that's not the focus. I no. see that the, the analogy there would be more like in baseball, where you sign somebody to a deep farm. So you, you know, it's a, you're one or two years away from necessarily. Yeah, your very them. best. That's a fair question. Like in baseball, we know that they draft whatever they draft, twenty or thirty guys, yeah. and then and then they don't see them for a while. Mostly, they don't see them at all. But they, they're paying attention, but we're not paying attention. Yeah. Where, where are the top? How long are the top picks? In, in minor leagues, like the top 
10 picks in the in in the MLB draft. They can still I mean still on the scale of years. I mean like I still think somebody working their way up over like a, a year or two is considered pretty quick. pretty unprecedented. Yeah, quick. That's, quick. Yeah, that's right. Right, right, right. And then some of those guys are going to be, you know, they they get yeah. they they draft both high school and college guys and presumably they're on different development. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I mean of course there's some people like, you know, the very rare cases like, you know, the Mike Trouts or Bryce Harpers of the world that like just come up very quickly yeah. where they're like, well, we might as well just get that, this guy in front of pros. Yeah. He's not going to learn anything away. down here. So, you know, what about in hockey? I know the Leafs had the number one pick a couple years ago. Yeah. And, and in hockey, hockey is similar, more similar to basketball. People can have a relatively immediate impact. Straight away. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yep. Like rookie season. Yep. These guys. Yeah. But I they, mean, not, but they come in young, don't they? I mean, they're kind of like yeah, baseball in that way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they do come in young, but you know, you've got 18, 19 year olds that are like essentially ready to make an impact. If wow. uh, you know the kind of stars out there or whatever, I mean, Connor McDavid, for example, when he was drafted by the Oilers, they didn't keep that guy down. Why in, do you Why do you think you know, it is farm that, very long? Why do you think it is that what 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 determines whether an eighteen year old can make a contribution at the professional level? Why is that very cross sport? So we're saying basically basketball clearly, um, right after that hockey, um, and then football you don't see much of it in baseball. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, Not at all. it's actually a really good question. I mean, football, you can kind of explain that, like, you know, a system is so important, and you really kind of need to learn a system to, like, really be proficient, I would guess. That, like, you know, uh, football, at least it seems to me that the actual, like, you know, transfer of the skill set from college to pro is not kind of automatic because you were in college under some certain system that was maybe optimized you went a different direction than i, I would have um, thought it, that it was more about physical maturity in oh, football more than the other sports i mean, really it, I mean it's it could the be, most physical game yeah um i mean certainly in in hockey pe- players there's a i i think the physical maturity aspect is mostly what holds them back because i don't think like there's nearly as much like in-game system or whatever that they need to kind of tailor towards a specific okay. team in hockey. Okay. Um, I think there yeah, why it's is more baseball than... the longest developmental. So it's, it's like years longer than anything else. Why would that be? Yeah. Is I mean, it, is it the skills? It's, I, it's I think it's just developing mastery. those skills. I think it's just a mastery of skills. And, says, and, 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 it, and it's so, such hard skills to master that you need to filter out a ton of people in order to essentially do it. Isn't that interesting that yeah. there would be one of these four major sports where we're essentially saying the skills component is that much harder? Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense because the, 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 the athletic component is clearly much less, right? Okay. okay. Right. I mean, I mean, you've seen somebody like CC Sabathia play or like <laughs> Lance. I mean, these are people or like David Wells or... Well, John not even Kruk, I mean, not, like, no, you, not even just pitchers, right? So you cut the crux. So like yeah. some of the other kind of more rotund hitters. That's right. Kirby Puckett's. And yeah, I mean, I mean, you don't have to. I, I, you, those you know, guys are athletic. They're just interestingly sized for a professional athlete. That's right. That's right. That, yeah, that's and they're they're certainly in the game not because of their athletic. They are probably all dramatically more athletic than the rest mm. of us. Yep. It's just that compared to the typical professional athlete, their athleticism is a smaller component. Unless yeah, you're, right. you know, unless you're shortstop, back to the yep. shortstop thing. So, but the skill, just straight up skills component. Yeah. The craftsmanship required 
Is, yeah, and I, I think it somehow is sort of like almost like a vi- like a really hard video game where every new level, <laughs> the boss, like oh. like you become like you you're you're a, a great hitter in high school, and people are like, oh well, this guy's the best hitter we got. We should probably draft him as a major, you know, draft him um, in the baseball draft, and then you hit like single A, and you're challenged by a much better set of pitchers, and you yeah. either learn to you adapt your skill set in order to meet that new challenge or you don't yeah and the second you've kind of done that they're like oh he's good at hitting single a let's move up to the next set of pitchers that are even more difficult and so you've essentially got like three or four just kind of levels of a video game that you have to go up and there's a tremendous amount of attrition at each of those levels Mm -hmm. um it's 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 such a neat i mean baseball yeah the personnel forecasting part of 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 organization is one of the main thing i'm interested in and it's just such a bigger part of baseball yeah. because they have so many more people in their developmental system. No, and I mean, it's got to be so interesting. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, we had, I can't remember uh, who, what his name was, but we had on um, uh, one of the, uh, uh, data, the head of data analytics for the Cincinnati Reds a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the questions we asked him, it was kind of a tough question to ask, but it's like, you know, what, what gets you excited about your day-to-day job? When your team is like, you know, not not, not competitive, not contending for the not contending for like the playoffs, um, and I mean, I thought his answer was really interesting because it was talking about like, you know, th- you know that there's plenty of obviously going on behind the scenes at the major league level that one can track and keep one busy with, but also you're developing this vast kind of organization essentially mm-hmm. and so you know you're you're mostly focused on kind of the current season and 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 what you can do kind of immediately to help that situation but even the even the team with the in the worst pl- place in the ml current mlb uh, schedule they they still have a plan for like three four years from now right and, and that's the, uh, another thing that distinguishes baseball is that player development is a bigger component yeah. so there's the identification and assessment and uh, initial recruiting but then developing them once they're there it's necessarily a bigger part for exactly the kind of gestational reasons yeah. we were just going through. This is Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen. You can call and join if you'd like. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two Shane, on the football front, the Hall of Fame game was played last week. So we're actually off yeah. the dime with, uh, with football. So that was preseason. That was Ravens. But along with that, of course, was the Hall of Fame induction. So did you have any position on the inductees here? And it, we're always kind of interested in, like, the you know, the, oh, which just, tier, which tier these guys yeah, fall yeah, into. Yeah, yeah, I mean, again, I guess I don't. I mean, Eric's really, I mean, I'm. He has, I mean, he builds entire days around. Yeah, no, so, that's right. So, I mean, like, we're not going to necessarily be able to lean on his encyclopedic knowledge. But, but to my do, mind, can, to, my, can, to my. Intuitively, we can do this, though. It seems like such a strong class, right? So let's run through it real quick. Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, Ray, <laughs> Ray Lewis, Brian Dawkins, Brian. Brian Erlacher, Bobby Bethard, Robert Brazil, and Jerry Kramer. Yeah. So let's just remind everybody who these people are for those who may I not mean, if know. I think the first three or four First are three like, are obvious, 100% yeah. obvious. So remind us on Brian Dawkins. Uh, f- uh, for the Eagles? I mean, one of the best defensive backs, I think, ever, it, right? How long did he play? Like, Was there 90, the 90s-ish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Erlacher, 
He's a New Mexico State boy, University of New Mexico boy, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and I mean, like, like you know, I mean, I don't, phenomenal I, I don't bears. think, yeah, I, I don't know if Erlacher will be considered like one of the top five linebackers of all time or something like that. So I guess he would be one I would, you know, if I was to, if we were to take Eric's kind of three tiered system for the Hall of Fame from baseball and transfer to football. He's a he's a third tier. I would say second tier. I mean, Where's there's that? a third no, tier. I mean, he, I've heard of him. <laughs> Where are you putting I mean, Dawkins? I'm sure Where are you putting Dawkins? Dawkins would he's be not close. first. Dawkins, yeah. First is very precious territory. So okay, he's clearly okay, second. Fine. Okay, yeah, yeah. And if he's second, yeah. based on the way you described him to me, I'm putting Erlacher third. And I like Erlacher. <sighs> yeah, all right. Bobby all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 2A and 2B for those guys. Uh, That's you, right. Okay, now you've got a four-hall thing. Bethard is, is uh, on is the that deck too complicated? front. Robert Brazil, another linebacker who may be too old for you to yeah, remember. Yeah, that's right. I haven't this heard of him. This is special so, for yeah. me because yeah, yeah. he was a Houston Oiler. Okay. When, and he was a star when they had their training camp in my hometown. All right. All right. So okay. I, I, All was, right. That's I was kind of raised watching back in the so, day. So uh, given, given that you actually have what, been watching for longer and, and, and can kind of compare, like him versus Erlacher, though they did not play in the same era. Brazil was one. He was, Erlacher was more like a middle linebacker. Brazil was more of an edge guy. He he was, he predated, you know, the the um, the Giants. So much trouble, Taylor. Oh, Lawrence Taylor. He was, but he was a speed guy. Brazil was a speed guy. He's probably first, first ring as well. But Moss Owens Lewis, Lewis clearly inner, inner ring, no question. Well, yeah, Randy Moss, Moss, Moss Owens. They're like one of the two top five wide receivers of all time. Yeah, all three of those guys are inner, inner ring. Yeah, ring and ring. Ray Lewis. I mean, I Matty D. You agree with us on that? Yeah, so, first I'd, ring, first three. Um, that's three, three first ringers in a in a in a single induction. That's pretty strong. Yeah. Um. Shane, what about on the college football front? Have you seen the odds to win these things? Are you interested? Tell me. Of course, I'm interested. You're a in fact, guy. You know, and in fact, I, of course, I'm interested. Well, um, tell me more about that because I mean, who do you pull for? Have I convert? Have I have I rubbed off on you at all? Over well, I mean, years? yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. No, I mean, honestly, just just given your enthusiasm for the University of Texas, Austin, as well as my very positive spent experiences time there. spending time at Shane's, uh, and, Shane's and the, a semester down at, there. at the wonderful university in the great city of Austin. I mean, of course, I'm a fan of them. I mean, and if they actually start competing in a way, <laughs> I mean, I'll cheer for them every game. I've, I'll see them, and. They are they are in fact the most recent college football game I think I've actually seen in person. Probably by a long shot. Yeah. I'm guessing by uh, years. Like the only game you've been to in ten years. That's right. I think yeah. that's right. So and, that, I, and I should remedy that to be honest. But so um, we'll just run through the the conference championship odds real quick. Yeah. And get any commentary from you. So we've been talking about Texas of so the Big Twelve. OU is the hands down favorite. In mm-hmm. fact, they they are even money essentially to to win the big 12 texas comes in second there at at, at only plus 250 and tcu comes in third um ou the big story on ou is whether they can replace their heisman trophy winning quarterback first round number 1 pick in the draft right with uh, kyler murray who is a who is a top 10 baseball draft e okay and he's okay. he's going to he's he is going to play one more year supposedly of football right. before rolling over to to it's like to that baseball. guy uh, Drew Henson or whatever I, that's the one I most recent one I remember that played for Michigan right wasn't right. he uh, he was drafty thinking between football was he and baseball a top for 10? this guy's this guy's looking at he must have gotten some big insurance cuz yeah. and the team had to buy off on it cuz he got a multi million dollar um signing bonus there okay let's pop over to another relatively underestimated conference. Pac-12. 
Washington is the biggest favorite. No, they're not quite the biggest favorite on the board. They're a big favorite relative to favorites in other conferences. I was going to say, I thought they just really stood out from the competition, the Pac-12. This they, year. I've heard, been hearing good things about Stanford. Is that Top one three? Of the... I mean, okay. the trouble with Stanford's they're in the same division as Washington the yeah. North. USC is number two to win the conference because they are the clear favorite in the South. Basically, they have no competition in the South. There's nobody else anybody could see winning the South. Right. Um, whereas, you know, who's, who's not mentioned here because they're probably fourth is Oregon, mm-hmm. um, who's supposed to be coming back. They have one of the top quarterbacks in the country, big fella, right. and a new coach. And um, they are gonna they, they're gonna make another step. They think towards respectability. Um, working our way up to the big conferences, we're gonna go. We're gonna go ACC, where we have the biggest favorite on the board to win a conference, and that's Clemson All right. at minus one eighty. All right. um, everybody's I've got kind of a soft spot for Clemson, too, just because, you know, my wife's done a lot of work down there over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I've been in Clemson a few times. and I've not been. On, it's, you I know, think big I, I, school, I mean, right? football is very important to them down there. They, and I mean, I, I, maybe that's like a, the most benign statement ever. But like, you know, it, 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 it's it definitely is, I, as far as I can tell, the kind of like main uh, kind of energy in, in, in that town. Yeah. And uh, so. You know, when when they do well, it it's just adds an extra kind of vibrancy to that. Well, Davo Sweeney is building a, a a hell of a program down there, and um, it's it's the one program that's really stood toe to toe with Alabama the last few years. Well, yeah, and I feel like those guys down. have been coming in one two in sort of the overall ratings like yeah. the last few years running, right? Yeah, and they're favored. Clemson's many people's number one. I, they ESPN just did a a little article on top fifty. Five zero players yeah. in the country in college football, and and I swear the four starting linemen for Clemson defensive linemen were I don't know four out of the top twelve players <laughs> for the top fifteen um, four out of the fifteen it's just completely absurd yeah. their defensive line sounds scary Miami is second favorite um, and Miami is an interesting Mark Richt in his second year down there really has Miami coming coming back and they had from a t- good recruiting classes last year by programs that had been mm-hmm. down Miami had a program had a draft class as good as a, a recruiting class as good as Texas so that adds a little intrigue but yeah. last year my, Clint, Miami looked good all season and just got smashed by Clemson in the end okay stepping up in class the Big 10 well there's oh, some intrigue there there is some big intrigue here so Ohio State is the favorite but they're the only that uh, they're the only favorite that's less than even money to win their conference on this board. And I, I assume that uh, this is one of the questions I was kind of. I assume that that is changed, changed yeah. dramatically over the last couple of years. A week, the, uh, sorry, last yeah. couple of weeks, yeah. So the Urban Meyer controversy raises the question of whether he'll even be coaching them this yeah. year, or whether he'll be coaching them for all the games this year, and that has to have dropped their number. I don't know what it was before. Yeah. But truth is, they've got stiff competition in their division, that East Division, Penn State in particular. But the the board likes Michigan. Michigan mm-hmm. more likely than Penn State to to win the conference. I feel um, like Michigan's kind of been. Intri- I haven't really been tracking them closely because you know, I mean, like a couple years. I mean, when Harbaugh first showed up there, they came in like gangbusters, and mm-hmm. like we looked like, oh, this was going to be this Ohio right. Michigan like kind of rivalry That's for right. like years to come, and it hasn't really materialized on the field so much, right? No, well, Harbaugh was a very splashy hire. Yeah, he was an alum. He's one of the most revered coaches at the time. He had done it on both both the college and pro level. And he's and he's and he's a big talker, a lot of energy. And yeah, he, well, and that's that, one way of saying it. That first class, <laughs> the first year, he had a he had he was kind of loaded. He had a loaded roster. Some coaches 
walk in to loaded rosters, some walk into depleted rosters, and he had to load it, and then they all graduated. So he's had to had to rebuild this thing, and he had, he's had a little bit of trouble getting it going on. But, you know, he's in that division with Ohio State, which is year in, year out, one of the most talented programs in the country. Urban Meyer, one of the best coaches, at least on the field. Yeah. And so it's, they've have, they have struggled. And, you know, Michigan State's going to be competitive in that division. Yeah. Any of those four teams could win that East division. And even more so now with questions about Urban Meyer. Across the way, Wisconsin, again, just like last year, maybe not quite as much, but just like last year, head and shoulders above everyone else in the West. So Wisconsin against somebody yeah. from the East. And then finally, of course, the SEC. This is no big mystery here. Is Alabama highly rated going into the season? Is Shock- that- <laughs> shockingly, they have Bama minus 150. Um, and then Georgia at plus 270. Yeah. Those guys in different divisions. And so everybody anticipates an Alabama-Georgia SEC title game. And the big question that people are talking about is whether both of those teams will get invites to the playoffs, whether the SEC lands two yeah. of the four just like they did last year for the for the playoff. I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, I certainly I, I feel like we do talk about this um, – you know, at the start of every college football season, I know Eric. Our, Eric's already got some like you know nightmare scenario for the college football playoff like lined up by the start of each season. But I mean, I, it's it's going to be one or two games that are going to completely change our perspective on this, right? Like Georgia's going to lose something, or like you know Ohio State's going to lose an early game, and then Inevitably. it's all of a sudden like the calculations are completely different. <laughs> Pro- yeah, you know that's college football, right? That's what makes yeah. it fun. You go in thinking. You know, the the playoff teams are going to come from this set of six or seven. Yeah. How could it be that they don't come from this set of six or seven? And then almost inevitably, somebody from outside the top ten is going to mm-hmm. land in that top four. And we don't yet know who that's going to be. That, But but we... Because, we, I mean, even the SEC does have a few... I mean, the SEC, there's there's one or two. There's got to be one or two other strong teams Auburn. in there, right? Auburn, Auburn, is, is pretty, Auburn is third here, and they're a top ten team coming into the yeah. year. They've got a big, probably the biggest game in week one is Auburn-Washington. Washington Mm -hmm. has to go down there, I believe, to play it in Alabama. And that's basically the top Pac-12 team against the number three SEC team. And people are saying, you know, the Pac-12 needs that win for respectability. But it's a big big game in terms of determining playoff, you know, long-term, you know, implications, even though it's week one, because it is this intra-conference, inter-conference game. But Auburn Auburn could do it. Auburn's very talented. And with your uh, with the massive people, I mean, I know you're kind of evaluating every single game and like updating strengths based on it. Do you do sort of like a playoff simulator from the start of the season? Like, yeah, can you can so absolutely. so you can tell me week one which the highest playoff leverage games are. You know, right? we've not done. We've, that's an interesting question, Shane. I mean, we, we, there's there's a lot you can do with that thing, and it's a lot of fun, and we've and we refined it a great deal last year. Yeah. And we'll be busting it out here in the next couple of weeks as we nice. polish things up. We did a we did an early run, yeah, about a month ago, and we're updating all the numbers, you know, grad transfers and things like that yeah. now. So we'll get a refined run here. I don't know in the next week or two, and we'll break it down on the show. But um, you're talking about you could say the thing is, I don't know how much leverage any one game has really this far in advance, given that there are probably twenty, you know, fifteen, twenty teams in the running. There are twelve games to be played. You know, and it could be, I mean, it could be if you ran the numbers, it would be like, oh, well, this one's got like a 0.1% yeah. probability, 0.1% impact on yeah, playoff yeah. odds versus Something 0.01%. Like I mean, it could be that nothing is consequential. Nothing is, con- that's that's my that's my intuition. Nothing is yeah. consequential, though some would be far more consequential than others, and yeah. that, would be, that would be high on that. 
All right. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and collaborator Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow are out and about doing Adi and Eric things. They will be back. You can join us. If you want to jump in the conversation, give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, Matt Dots, standing by for your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or tweet at us. We're on Twitter, at Wharton Moneyball. I'm sorry, at W Moneyball, at W Moneyball. At W Moneyball, if you want to send us a question, observation, complaint, over, under, suggestion. We are rolling into the second quarter of the show, and as we typically do, we have a guest joining us this week. We're delighted to welcome to the show Greg Cosell. Greg is senior producer for NFL Films, where he's been for 38 years. He's also executive producer and analyst for ESPN's NFL Matchup. Greg, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Gentlemen, good morning. How are you? We're delighted to have you, Greg. We're doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Where are you calling in from this morning? From my office at NFL Films in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. All right. Well, we appreciate you making time for us. We are um, delighted, one, to be talking football because we've been kind of holding off all these months to make it to this point, and we're kind of finally taking the bridle off now. We're allowing ourselves to have NFL guests, college guests, and talk a little football. How's the off season been for you? Well, uh, you know, what I did on my summer vacation this year was actually watch about 130 college players on tape. So uh, that, was, that was my summer reading uh, assignment <laughs> this summer. So, yeah, I'm, I'm already looking ahead uh, to next year's NFL draft. But now now I'm focused totally on the NFL. I see. So when you say college players, it wasn't the incoming rookie class. It was next year's draft class. Correct. Correct. Uh, the, this incoming rookie class I did uh, leading up to the draft okay. at the end of uh, April. And do you do that? Do you work, do you do you look at that film for next year's draft class now to kind of get it out of the way because you know once the season hits you'll be distracted or why, why are you looking at it so far in advance? Just kind of fun and games. I, I my older daughter got married this past March, so my wife and I didn't get a chance to take a real vacation this year. Uh, so I had five weeks vacation, which is what I get, and didn't really have anywhere to go. So I <laughs> kind of came in the office and kind of leisurely started watching college players just because I enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Uh, but That's uh, wonderful. You know, now, I am, um, now I'll be 100% focused on the NFL until – after the Super Bowl, basically. Got it. I like that vacation plan. Yeah. I, I picture you in a film room with a Mai Tai or something <laughs> like that. Or... Well, no Mai Tai, but, uh, you know, a pretty good, decent-sized screen and, uh, and you know, just watching the All-22. And, you know, it, it's just I enjoy it. And, and without deadlines, it was kind of fun and leisurely and, uh, you know, didn't feel like I had to get everything done within a certain amount of time. Greg, can we ask you, I'm just since you've been talking and thinking about it, can, can you give us a, an insight or two about that college draft class? Anybody jump out at you? Well, boy, I watched a lot of players. That, that, open-ended questions are not good for me because I watch too many things. Okay. Uh, but I, I did watch 15 quarterbacks. Some of them are underclassmen who I guess theoretically do not have to come out. I watched 29 receivers. I watched about 13, 14 running backs. And then uh, 
a number of defenders uh, who I think are being talked about as yeah. top five type picks. Ed Oliver. Can you tell us about I Ed watched, Oliver? I watched Ed Oliver. He's he's a really, really good athlete. For a man that size, his feet are incredibly quick. He's He's a high, high-level athlete. But I'll tell you one thing. It'll be interesting to see how he progresses this year. He's not a natural pass rusher at this point. He certainly has the, the quickness and twitch and athletic movement to become one and to develop into one, but he's not a natural pass rusher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which of the defensive linemen at Clemson, my, my memory is they have four of the top guys in the, in the country. They're all in the their line is all top guys. Anybody, yeah, I anyone there? Three of them, just because it's hard to watch four. All you know. Uh, so the one I didn't watch was the one who's not going to be a senior this year. I watched the three who, I guess, are going to be seniors. I think okay. anyway. Um, uh, so I, I, the one who I thought was was most interesting was the uh, the defensive tackle, and now I can't exactly remember his name. That, but that's uh, all right. Yeah, but the defensive tackle, I think, is, is, is a pretty explosive player. Um, they also had the two defensive ends. They had uh, Farrell at, at defensive end and Austin Bryan at defensive end. And it's just bugging me now that I can't remember the defensive tackle's name. But I think he could, he could easily, with a good season, because see, when I watch tape, I look at traits. I look at traits, attributes, characteristics. And I think the defensive tackle has really, really good traits. Mm-hmm. So tell us about defensive tackles. You're, you're, as we talk about the, as we move to the NFL, some folks have said, you know, there's a movement towards prioritizing rush from the inside. That's more disruptive. So, that, so right. if you can find these defensive tackles who are good pass rushers, it's a real advantage. Is that legitimate in your take as you watch the NFL evolve? Has there is there is that shift, or is that just a narrative? No, I think. Well, first of all, I think. Y- you have to start with that offense. How has offense changed? Because that dictates how defense will then change. And I think with offense in the NFL, what you're seeing a lot more of is what we call quick game with the pass game. Mm-hmm. And three-step drop, quick five-step drop, the ball's getting out a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's always going to be third and eight and third and nine. We know that. Um, but overall, the way offenses are are sort of being put together now and we can debate the influence of college that's that's a different question but the reality is you're seeing a lot more quick game you're seeing a lot more what i would call backfield actions so you're seeing a lot more misdirection deception those kinds of things in the backfield and this makes it harder for defenses to digest what they're seeing there's a lot of stress on the second level defenders meaning linebackers often safeties and it just makes it more difficult for them to react with the speed that obviously defensive coaches would like them to react with. Mm-hmm. But there's just so much going on in the backfield now that there's such a misdirection deception element to offense. It, that's the way the game is changing. So does it mean that you need more inside pass rushers? Uh, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I still think that a lot of people would say that, you know, that when it gets to third and eight and third and nine and there's a number of those plays in every game and they're usually meaningful plays that you still need to be able to rush the quarterback from the edge. Mm-hmm. So uh, is when it comes down to prioritizing, that's a tough thing for me to answer. Obviously, there's a finite amount of money that's available right. to pay players. So therefore, you have to decide where you want to allocate your resources. But... You know, if, if let's say you have Aaron Donald, but you have nobody on the outside, you can handle Aaron Donald. Right. You know, so it, that that's a 
there's so many variables in all this, and and that's why I love watching tape because what to me tape talks about is the process. It talks about the origin, the genesis of why things happen. You know, the result of, of plays is is easy. That's a mathematical equation. Right. I really enjoy the process, the genesis, the origin. Well, see, that's an interesting. That's an interesting juxtaposition because you know we we as analysts tend to look more almost because those have been the only data available at the outcomes right and And they're just sort of easier to tabulate than like (laughs) all that's going on during the process for sure for sure but i think a good analyst appreciates that their numbers and their models don't have the whole story and you need to talk to experts you need to talk to people who are looking at things you know looking at the process itself can you can you talk about what how you've seen analytics blended well with more process oriented information whether it's well i know this is what you guys do and i don't mean to like you know but i don't know i don't know specifically how people define analytics Mm -hmm. Uh, the way I, i sort of grew up in my life going to amherst college and just working in my life is Critical thinking is, is the most important thing. More information is always better than less information. Then it depends on how you go about using it. So uh, more information is always better, but I, I don't know exactly how analytics would be defined when it comes to the NFL. Uh, so that that's a hard question for me to answer. You know, I think that every coach going back to the beginning of time wants more would want more information now because of the advances in technology and research and all those things we have so much information uh, sometimes it feels like there's too much information because no one really knows exactly what's important and what's not important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and different people have different views on that there's no right or wrong there mm-hmm. but i you know I, I don't know like you guys work in the analytics field i know that but i don't know you know how would you, i'm asking you guys how would you define analytics when it comes to the nfl and i know it's not a, a 10 word answer but i you know I, I don't have a great feel for that well i think it's a fair question because many people would define it differently and I mean, it's it, it ends up looking like teams rated by power rankings. They're saying this team is you know six point seven plus six point seven, and this other team is minus three point four. And that doesn't mean anything to me. And I'm just being honest with you. Yeah, no, no, no. I and I understand that. I think when it's done well, you translate it into meaningful terms. So you know we'll we'll end up ranking the number one team. Let's just say the Pats are number one. I don't know what they're going to be, but we're going to say you know they're a, they're a, at the beginning of the season. We think they're plus seven versus an average team and that means if they played the average team on a neutral field would expect them to win by seven points right so it, but it, it's this the, i think what people who who are deeply immersed in the field resist about that is that you necessarily are going to distill this very rich team or a very rich player or a very rich play down to one number or two numbers I mean, yeah, you're which, necessarily scrunching it dramatically yeah. I mean, a great example of this, which I'm sure you guys are aware of, you're at the University of Pennsylvania, just down the road from where I am. So you're obviously familiar with the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, I know for a fact, as you guys do, that when it comes to, let's say, their fourth down situations, that they very much work off analytics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, two years ago, they went for it on fourth down a lot, and they didn't get it. And Doug Peterson was an idiot. This year, (laughs) they went for it on fourth down a lot, and he was a genius because they got it. Now, their approach to it did not differ. Yeah, and, and and certainly that is something that analysts, at least the two analysts that you're talking to, make a very big deal about is this distinction between kind of process and outcome. And that so many of the narratives we see um, across sports, whether it's football, baseball, or whatever, are based on kind of like our, our kind of retrospective, you know, kind of 
you know, recency bias of particular outcomes as opposed to a true actually kind of evaluation of the underlying process. Yeah. So that, yeah. in that way, we're very consistent with you, Greg, in that we, we want to reify process and we mm-hmm. want to reward good process and we want to kind of preach against overreacting to outcomes because a team or a coach or a quarterback can do something exactly right and chance works against them or things outside their control work against them. So we really do want to fundamentally focus on process. Good. Our claim would be that good analytics help us do that. And, right, and I agree with that. I've had, I've had this conversation with Joe Banner a number of times ah. over the last number of years, and you know his, his point was, which I couldn't agree more with, is that analytics is one tool in the process. That's right. And, yeah. and, and I would say that pretty much everything is a, is a piece of a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then each coach, each general manager, whoever, they have to decide how they want to move around the pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, some may focus more on analytics. Some may focus more on, on film study. You know, th- that then becomes a, a personal decision based on one's inclinations and biases and prejudices as they've built up their career and gone about doing their work. Uh, but I think everything gives you, as I said, more information, and it's just how you choose to sort of bring that information together. Well, and I think the best organizations, and and this is really hard to pull off, the best organizations figure out how to bring those things together instead of them having little, you know, fiefdoms and battles inside about who's going to have more say. And, you know, there's a new book by Ben Ryder about the Astros, and, and what his main point there is they've figured out a way to blend the experts, the scouts, traditional ways of looking at baseball with quantitative analysts and and uh, you know there are analysts all over the nfl now but they don't all they're not all integrated into the organization very well in fact very rarely are they integrated into the organization it's just one tool but it's not useful unless people are figuring out how to use it along next to the rest and of course one of the great examples where you know now we look back and it seems silly is what happened in cleveland when they brought in paul de podesta and i guess they publicly announced that they didn't think carson wentz would be a top 20 quarterback in the nfl Mm -hmm. and and granted they're not the first team in, in the history of this league to make a mistake on a quarterback. Right. We know that. Right. And the teams have made mistakes for years, so this is not looking at to rip Paul De Podesta. But just from what I read, and obviously you guys know more about this than I do, but they base their decision on their view of analytics. And again, I don't know what went into that. Yeah. You guys may know that, but you know. To, even if you didn't think he was the first pick or second pick in a draft to come out strongly and say, we don't think he's going to be a top 20 quarterback in the league, based on study of the player is a little harsh. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. It's, it's, it, is, it is hard. I think what made his case especially difficult was that he wasn't playing at an FBS school. And it's just so hard to, to get the comparisons right whenever you're not seeing him against real competition. Well, I'd, I'd, and that's where, look, believe me, I'm, I'm wrong like everybody else, okay? But I've been doing this a long time as far as grinding on the tape, and, yep. and that's what I do, yep. you know, and which doesn't make, like I said, I've been wrong like many other people, but I tend to focus on traits, attributes, characteristics, you know, and I think that I have a sense from studying coaching tape hard for going on 30 years uh, of what it takes to play in the NFL at, at various levels, various degrees, and just to me, I think you have to start there. Now, well, that doesn't t- can, mean you end there. Can you give us an example? So the so New Orleans traded up in kind of a controversial move to take an edge rusher out of UTSA last year. And this guy is perceived to be this great athlete, and it may be a very successful pick. It really might be. But I'm curious, you as a film guy, how do you – this guy's not going against you know very solid 
left tackles or right tackles. He's not he, he's not facing the toughest competition. How how did you evaluate him when you looked at the tape? How did you know that that guy was going to be able to do that against stiffer competition? Well, you're looking you're talking about Marcus Davenport. Yeah. So you start. There's various ways to do it. You know, a lot of people will start by looking at his measurables. Okay, he's he's looks like Tarzan. He ran really, really well. He's got a long wingspan. So you start with things like that. Okay, that, that's not from the tape. Those are just looking at the the physical traits as measurables. Yep. Um, you know, I made the point, and I watched. Uh, I'm looking at my notes now. I watched seven games of Marcus Davenport, seven full games, and I have the all 22 coaching tape. So I made the point that I thought he was a very intriguing prospect because he has a desirable combination of length, point of attack strength, overall athleticism and movement. You know, I thought just watching him play, looking at his traits, there were elements of Jadavion Clowney in his size and style oh, of wow. play. Oh, my. Not purely as powerful as Clowney, uh, but stylistically, he, he played very similarly. Uh, now, He's a naturally strong guy. Now, it's very difficult, no question, to decide what his strength is if he's playing against a smaller school guy. Right. But the, the style in which he plays, he plays a strong man's game. Okay. Now, can you, can, will there be evaluators who will say, hey, that strong man's game is going to end when he goes up against Tyron Smith? Right. You know, I, that, that's a, then you have to make a value judgment. You know, but just looking at the the style in which he plays, you know, he he looks like with his traits that he'll be a quality player. Now, yeah. when I say he he stylistically looks like Clowney, you know, I'm not saying he's Jadavion Clowney. That's a stylistic thing for me. Okay. You know, now the negatives are that he plays a little upright, which, okay. by the way, Jadavion Clowney does too. Okay. But he's a little too tall. He's a little upright. He's got a little stiffness in his in his core. Um, he's not a super flexible guy. He plays a strong man's game. Okay. Okay. So, you know, then you have to decide based on that where you draft him. Right. And right, right. then you have to decide how he fits into your defensive scheme. NFL coaches think about scheme adaptability. That's what they think about. They're not as focused as scouts are on pure measurables. Interesting. They, they're looking at scheme adaptability. So, Greg, let's talk a little bit about scheme because it's it seems to be something that separates some coaches from other coaches and you had a recent piece on Kyle Shanahan and Garoppolo and talking about the fit there and what Shanahan does uniquely in offense and as we as we move from talking about players to schemes what do you see separating some coaches the best coaches from other coaches in the way they design and implement schemes well I think one thing you need to understand I think you need to understand if you're an offensive coach defense in the NFL to the highest degree because otherwise you're 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 randomly just picking plays uh -huh. and I think the best offensive coaches have a real good sense of defensive tendencies defensive concepts and how to break that down mm -hmm. now football is a game of probability and tendency not certainty nothing is a hundred percent right but you do enough study and you pretty much know, I've talked to so many coaches over the years, and they tell me, oh, this is what we're going to get on, in this down and distance situation. They pretty much know this because coaches coach against coaches. <laughs> they know what other coaches are doing. Yeah, right. So okay. someone like Kyle Shanahan is so good at understanding the defense 
and what he's going to get so he understands how to break it down. Okay. And the second thing he does, as well as anybody in the NFL, is what I call his run-pass fusion. Uh-huh. His run game and his and his play-action-pass game look exactly alike. Greg, can I ask you about that? Because it jumped out to me when I read this article. As a fan, you always want that. You kind of, you're frustrated with you know, offensive coordinators who don't have that or coaches who don't have that. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard? It seems like that's a design choice. You, you draw these plays up. They either do or do not look like one another. They either... Well, I- so I can't answer that because I don't know what's in coaches' heads, you know, when it comes to that. But I, I would agree with you. You, you would want your run game and your play action or run action pass game to, to more appropriately call it to look very similar. Mm-hmm. Because just like I spoke earlier about all the backfield actions out of the shotgun that put tremendous stress on defenses and second-level players, that's what the run-pass fusion does. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why you have to understand defense and fronts, because you have to understand, for instance, let's say you're going to run an ISO lead play to the, to the weak side, okay. Okay, away from the tight end. Mm-hmm. You know that the stacked backer to that side, when he sees the ISO lead action with a fullback, which is something else Shanahan does that not many teams do, you know that that linebacker, that stacked linebacker to that side, his responsibility is to fill and to step up. Mm-hmm. So you then can design a pass play pass game concepts that work off your understanding of how the defense has to play that. Right, right. And that's where Kyle Shanahan, to me, is as good as there is in the NFL. Okay, well, him match with Garoppolo out in San Francisco should be something for us to watch this coming year. Can, we're down to just a couple of minutes, sadly, with you, but I'm curious, to, we're rolling into thinking about the season. Is there a team that you're especially curious about, or is there an issue yes. or evolution you're especially curious about? Uh, I'm, I'm very curious about the, the coaching uh, duo in Chicago, okay. where Matt Nagy has come from the Andy Reid school. That's his background in the NFL. Mm-hmm. But he he brought in Mark Helfrich, who comes from the Chip Kelly school. Yeah, right. So to me, I'm fascinated by the mix of those two philosophies. Okay. I have no idea how it will play out. We'll probably get a little bit of a sneak peek in the preseason, but not enough to really draw a major conclusion because mm-hmm. they're not going to give away what they really want to do. Right. But they'll practice some things just so we'll get a little a little look. But I think uh, I give Matt Nagy, and I, he's one gentleman I do not know, so, and he doesn't need me to, you know, he doesn't care what I think, but I, I give him tremendous credit just to someone who studies the game for sort of stepping outside his comfort zone as a first-year head coach to expand his philosophies and, and to really think about the game in an evolving way. That's interesting. You've given us another team to keep an eye on. I did not know that story, and, that, and that's very helpful. Greg, we have to let you go, but we really appreciate your joining us this morning and wish you the best with the work coming up. Guys, I really enjoyed the talk. Thanks so much. Absolutely. That was Greg Cosell, senior producer for NFL Films. He's been there 38 years. He's also executive producer and analyst for ESPN's NFL matchup, Greg Cosell. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. You can join the conversation. Shane and Cade here hosting today. You want to give us a ring, one 844 wharton 
That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, Matty Dats, standing by, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or tweet us, tweet at us. The handle up there is at WMoneyBall. Twitter handle is at WMoneyBall. You can reach us just off the phone with Greg Cosell. That was a fun conversation, huh, Shane? Yeah, that was... Uh, that I could was have talked cool. to him for a while. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Did did you Was it good or bad that I restrained from asking him about his uncle? Because I want to talk to him about his uncle. Yeah. I mean, if you're my era, you were, like, born into football listening to Howard Cassell call Monday night games. Yeah, no, I mean, I it's basically, I you know, you hear his voice. You're like, oh, my goodness, there's an old football game on or something like that, you know? <laughs> totally. Like no, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was everything. He, yeah. was, he was so big and mixes into boxing as well. But yeah. that would be a fun thing to do. He probably gets tired of talking about his yeah. uncle. So I... I managed to hold off, but I—he's the kind of guy that, with the knowledge he has, you could talk to for, you know, oh, the whole yeah, two-hour no, show. Oh yeah, no, that's probably. right, that's right. I mean, I, you know, I kind of feel like I there's a hundred different questions I could ask him. Well, you're going to have some questions for our next guest as well because he's in your baseball corner of the world. Zach Rosenthal is joining us. Zach is assistant general manager of baseball operations with the Colorado Rockies. He's in his thirteenth season up there. Zach, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Zach, where are you calling in from today? From Denver. From Denver. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm actually home. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Is that yeah, an unusual uh, thing, not going down to the park or the office? Uh, well, you know, it's only 7 o'clock here. I'll be down there <laughs> in a little bit. We've got the uh, big game against the Pirates today, trying to win a series and, and see if we can stay in this thing heading into September. Well, it's a fun. It's a fun. It's not just a fun time of year for you guys, especially right now, and especially series against. Yeah, the Na- the National League this year has just been really interesting to watch. I mean, no, there's, I yeah, it's it's it seems I mean, like more, everybody's in contention. More than half the teams are in contention, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, we we talk about it in the office. If you look up and down the list of clubs in the National League, nobody's. I mean, they're they're really good teams all over the place, but it's just really competitive. Um, there aren't a lot of really bad teams, right? And and I think that's a credit to baseball and, and to what everybody's doing. But what well, it's also, I mean, it's like a real stark contrast with what's going on in the American League right now, which is yeah, quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's a little bizarre. Um, I'm not really sure why that's happening that way, but it makes it a lot of fun. I mean, every series that we're playing, the rest of it, I think we play the Padres twice, but otherwise. We are playing playoff contenders, I mean, literally the rest of the way, and, and that's a two-month stretch. So, um, you know, if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best, I guess, right? right. So, so we're going to find out. So tell us a little bit about the club. What are the strengths of the club, and what are you worried about going into the last two months of the season? Well, you know, we we pitched really, really well from our starting rotation, um, and it's a, it's a young group. You know, they, they kind of came into their own last year a little bit, and, um, they've done a great job this year um, pitching both, you know, in Denver and, and on the road. Um, so so what's been, the story? Freeland has like the lowest ERA in, in Coors Field history or something? He's he's been tremendous. I mean, it's funny. You look at his, his splits, and he's actually been better, you know, at Coors Field than he has been elsewhere. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that there's a, a good reason for that. I will say, you know, he grew up in the area, and pitching here is not – something that's ever bothered him. Okay. Um, you know, I know he, he knows, you know, how his body works. He knows how the ball reacts to, to him. And, um, you know, not that we go out trying to draft kids from Colorado for that reason, but, um, you know, there's no fear there, right? And um, one of the things that we talk about a lot with our pitchers is just come in and be yourself and just pitch. And, and you know, you can compete here. And I think we've seen that from, from our guys. 
Mm-hmm. So, well, so it, in your sort of experience, because you've been there for a while, have you sort of seen that some some pitchers that have come in uh, from major league careers elsewhere to Colorado and joined the Rockies, they've kind of maybe in your estimation almost like kind of tried to overcompensate, you know, adapt, but like overcompensate for kind of the the kind of unique conditions that are there. Well, let's let's be clear real quickly to folks who aren't paying yeah. attention. We're talking about altitude, right? Yeah. So it's just hitter, hitters generally have better luck out there. In fact, early on, you guys had to adjust your park because it was just too much of a hitter's park. Yeah. So we're talking that's, – that's the issue here. And so back to Shane's question. Yeah, so it, it depends. You know, everybody's a little bit different. We've had, we've had pitchers that come in here who have successful careers elsewhere who really just – just trust their stuff and do their thing. And those, those tend to be the guys who have success. Um, Jake McGee is a really good example of that. Um, Wade Davis, you know, Greg Holland last year. And those are guys that I think they just don't really care where they pitch, right? It's give me the ball and I'm going to get you out and let's, let's move on. Um, you know, we've had experiences the other way. Uh, Jeremy Guthrie um, was a guy that, you know, we traded for from Baltimore and he had, you know, I think five years in the big leagues when we got him and, really struggled in our place. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that I think for those of us that have been here and, and watch it every day, I think there's more made of it outside of our walls than, than what is reality. Is that right? The walls. Okay. Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing about Coors Field is not that the ball flies farther or that you can't throw a curveball because you can. Um, I think the biggest thing for us is it's so – the outfield's so expansive um, that we, we see a lot of, like, blue pits, you see broken mm-hmm. bat hits, you see balls in the gap that aren't usually in the gap. And we haven't ranked first in, in home runs in terms of park factor in a long, long time. It's okay. more about extra base hits and, and extra base runners and that type of stuff. So, you know, for us, you know, don't walk anybody, right? Because you, you're likely to give up more hits than you will somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can limit that and play good defense, you know, we really feel like we have a pretty good chance at our place. So, you, you know, you started talking about the pitching staff, but you've also got a couple of the best position players in the league. And, yeah. and we're talking the thing about Blackman and Arenado in particular, but you guys, these are some of your home-raised ra- talent. Is, what, mm-hmm. is, is there something you guys feel, I mean, you know, so, how much of this is because you've got a good system going on for drafting and developing players, and how much of it is, well, every now and then something's going to bubble up and happen? Do you feel like you're doing something that's that's different than the rest of the league or, or, or special in contributing to this? Well, I'll tell you this. Don't leave Trevor Story out of that, that group. Um, if you're going to talk about great position players, I mean, he's turned himself into one of the best shortstops in baseball. Got team. it, got um, it, got it. Agreed. I I think, you know, I think we, I'll tell you this. I, I believe very strongly that our, our ability to draft and develop in this organization is, is right up there with anybody else's. Um, I don't know, you know, necessarily doing something different um, or better. I, I will say that Bill Schmidt, who's our um, scouting director, um, has a, an incredible track record for drafting hitters, uh, particularly later in the draft. Um, you know, there's, you can look up and down the history of the Rockies, guys like, Brad Hopp and, and Garrett Atkins and even a Dexter Fowler, uh, Matt Holiday, um, and then you look at our, you know, Corey Dickerson, who's in here playing for the Pirates right now. Zach, how late? Play. When you say late in the draft, how late are you talking about? Just outside of the first round. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. you know, like because okay. you, you look at Nolan and, and Charlie. You mentioned those guys who are who are second round picks, and, and Trevor Story was um, outside of the first round too, technically. But you know, you're talking about guys that it's not like they're you know we had a bunch of top ten draft picks, you know, over the, the course of my career here. And it, it's not those guys that, that we're seeing turn into these MVP, you know, caliber guys. It's 
guys later in the draft. And so, okay. you know, the, the funny thing about the Major League Baseball draft, you guys know this, is that it's, it's, it's really, really hard. <laughs> it's a craft. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> so, you know, but we, we've had success with offense, um, and we've had success with our own pitching now, too. I mean, if you look at you know, guys like Hal Freeman and, and Tyler Anderson are, are really contributing for us, and, and Chad Bettis and John Gray. And, you know, so we've got, you know, really outside of our bullpen, the majority of our club has been a homegrown group. Mm-hmm. And, and the bullpen, you know, we went out and spent money on that bullpen this past offseason to the extent that we have the highest paid bullpen in the history of baseball, I think. Yeah, that right. Wow. Okay. And they're struggling, right? So it's, it's funny that, that that's been the part for us that, that has been difficult. Um, you know, we blew, a, what, three saves on the last road trip, and um, you know, that's that's tough to do. But Brian, guys like Brian Shaw and Jake McGee, that we spent some money on, um, and who have a really, really good track record, you know, for me at least, I think there's good things to come from those guys, and we've got, you know, seven weeks left or so. And I think that um, when those guys get rolling and you put them with that starting rotation with those position players that you mentioned, you know, we're capable of going on a pretty good run, I think. Zach, when 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 the casual observer thinks about baseball organizations, they think about the you know twenty five man roster or whatever the guys they see on the field every day. But but we know that that's only the tip of a of a big pyramid. Essentially, you guys have hundreds of players in your system. In your experience, what how much of it is identifying these guys at the time of the draft, and how much of it is the development you put into them once they're in the system? I don't. That's a really good question. I, I don't know what percentage to put on it. Um, I think part of it's all part of a process, though. Um, identifying the physical tools that these guys have for the draft isn't always the challenge. A lot of the time, it's, it's identifying you know what what's inside them, what kind of person they are, how hard do they want to work, mm-hmm. how badly do they want it. Um, because the reality is that a lot of these guys going into the draft have never failed. You know, they've never struggled on a baseball field. Really in their entire life. Right. They're the best. They're, they've always been the best player on their team. Um, and so when you get to pro ball, that's going to change. At some point, mm-hmm. you're going to run into a, a slump of some kind because that's just reality when you're playing as many games as we play. And so a big part of it for us is trying to identify that mindset along with the physical tools and then and then working to grow both of those things together um, over the course of time. And you know, for us, we we want our guys to struggle before they get to the big leagues, and I'm sure that that's that's true for for everybody. But you know, that's important to us that that they failed. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, we, the one thing you don't want is for a guy to just dominate the minor leagues all the way through, show up in the big leagues, and all of a sudden have a a one for you know 32 streak going, and and have him emotionally not understand that he can get out of it. Right. Um, right. So, right. You know, I think we work a lot on all of those things. Development, um, once you get the player, is, is obviously crucial. Um, and, you know, hopefully that some of the work you've done going into the draft in terms of identifying the type of person and what makes them tick and all that helps you to develop them, too. Um, Zach, we were, I, we were musing about this early in the show, about why, why is it that the gestation period for professional baseball players is so much longer than for any of the other major professional sports? I mean, football players contribute straight away. Basketball, you know, more or less straight away with a little bit longer lag. Hockey, there's a little bit of a minor league thing, but some guys are playing straight away. And then you get to baseball, and it's literally years. Like, no, the best in the college, the best of high school kids, you got years before you can really contribute at the professional. But why is it so different? 
think, and this is, you know, I'm no expert in those other sports, so I'll start by saying that, but I'm a fan, so I watch a lot of it. I, th- I think specifically for basketball and uh, for football, uh, so much of that sport is just athleticism and physicality, right? That if you're, if you're strong and you're fast and you're able to do things, you do have the ability to contribute. Um, for us, I think baseball is more of a skill sport in a lot of ways than, than those others. I also think that, you know, the hardest thing to do in, in all of sports is to hit a baseball, um, you know, especially these days. It can be throws 95 yeah. miles an hour. <laughs> Get, getting harder. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so I, I don't, I don't know why, but I do know that it's, it's a real thing. It's not that baseball teams are, are scared or, or more conservative. I mean, you watch guys as they move up from one level to the next and they struggle. It's mm-hmm. hard. And, you know, the jump from, from double A to the big leagues, which we've done with a few guys, um, is a huge jump. I mean, it's, it's night and day in terms of the quality of the baseball. And, you know, I think, the pitcher's ability to command the baseball at the major league level and to put it where they want and to change speed. And, you know, hitting is all about timing, right? And big league pitchers, as hard as they throw and as good as they are putting it where they want, if they can change timing to go with that, right. it's really, really hard to hit. Um, and I think that's what we spend a lot of time working on with, with hitters is having them understand, you know, how to create that type of timing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, on the and, you know, for the pitchers, you know, it's kind of the same thing, but for those guys, it's, it's working on being really fine and making sure you command. Because if you don't, the hitters are, are they're going to get you. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the minor league levels, if you watch any minor league games, you can see it. Even at the double A and triple A levels, it's different baseball than what you see on a big league field. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't you know I I don't know why that's the case, um, but I think it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we've seen, you know, there are certain players that certainly can get around that, right, that are just able to, to kind of fly through the system and move up quickly. And um, and there are players that, that just take longer. And, you know, part of it might also be how many, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids that we sign out of the Dominican Republic or Venezuela or uh, high school and, and kids that just need to grow up and, right. and become adults as well. Right. Yeah, part right. of our process, too. Right. We're talking to Zach Rosenthal. Zach is assistant general manager of baseball operations with the Colorado Rockies. He's been out there 13 seasons. Your background is a little different than the typical guest for us um, in that you, you, you come in as a as general counsel, right? You have a legal background. Um, yes. Can you talk with us? We, we love talking to non-analytics types about how analysts can be better. And analytics has has gotten such a such traction in baseball these days. Mm-hmm. What as as the guy who's not running the numbers necessarily or having a background in the numbers, but you are involved with decision making that kind of necessarily involves incorporating some of the numbers. What what advice would you give to the analytics community about how we can do things better, be be more effective? Well, so it's it's funny. I, I actually I run that department too. Um, I you know I, I started even though I went to I went to law school to try and get into sports. Um, but my passion was always the, the baseball numbers and um, the whole Moneyball revolution, if you want to call it, that started kind of when I was in college and, and when I got to, um, when I finally had the opportunity to work here, um, we didn't really have anybody focused on, on analytics and so I, I started doing that. And, um, eventually over time I hired a bunch of people that are a heck of a lot smarter than I am to, to really do it. Um, and to take it to a level that I couldn't because of, of my background. But um, I think that the one thing that, that I always warn our guys about is 
it's just not being too firm in the belief of something that uh, the numbers might tell you and then to, to dig your heels in against something that your eyes are telling you. Um, you know, there's, there's certain things that, you know, talking about baseball being different than other sports, I think that's one place that, that we get stuck in analytics. And, and I find myself doing it too because I trust data and I trust numbers. But um, the reality is that the human being element of this game is, is huge, probably more so than anywhere else because Zach, can you give us of the- how much they fail. Can you, you right, right, right? It, okay, that's interesting. You're saying you know if you're if a good batting average is 300, you know if you're failing 700 percent of the 70 percent of the time, then you've got to have some mental capacity for dealing with that in order to recover, and that's different than most sports. Can, yeah. can, can you give us an can you give us an example? You mentioned that the main thing you tell your guys is don't get too entrenched with your numbers. Don't believe them. You know, don't, don't dig in too much. Can you give us an example of where you've seen that happen? And where, where have you, it sounds like a lesson well learned by you. Um, a good question. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, there are certain stats that are out there. So we, we have in our group, and I would guess this is true for a lot of teams, but we've built our own internal metrics. We've got our own war metrics. We've got our own defensive metrics and, you know, things that, that, try to identify player performance the way that we believe in players, the, the type of players that we want. And one of the things that's out there all the time is, you know, looking at like defensive run saves, for example, um, and the, the public version of, of DRS, which is really good. I mean, they do a lot of good things. Um, but, you know, DRS, for example, has Nolan Arenado at, you know, I think four defensive run saves this year. I mean, he is a guy that I watch every night. Um, and I don't think that he gets nearly enough credit for his defense. Mm-hmm. He's going to win probably his fifth gold glove, and he's only been in the league for five years, so people uh-huh. are noticing. Um, but he is—he's he, unbelievable, and, mm-hmm. and the, the way he changes games at third base is incredible. And I saw a stat last night um, as a Pirates in town that Corey Dickerson has nine runs saved, and Nolan Arenado has four. And look, I love Corey. We drafted him. I know him. Um, but Corey Dickerson is not a better defensive player than Nolan Arenado. <laughs> right, right. It's just not true. Um, and so, you know, those are the types of things that if you if you don't if you aren't willing to say, okay, somebody at some point came up with a formula to determine what DRS is, right? It's not something that's like naturally in the universe. Some people yeah. sat down and said, okay, mm-hmm. what makes sense? And if you don't agree with that, it's okay to say, look, maybe we need to adjust that. We need to think a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at the results of this stuff. Like every one of these metrics is great, but there's a reason that the Fangraphs and Baseball Reference disagree on their war metrics a lot of the time, right? It's because <laughs> right. they just disagreed on the formula. Yeah. Um, and so using, I, I think there's an element of using some common sense and, and some logic um, and, and not allowing, you know, if you see something that doesn't feel right, um, not just saying, well, it must be right because that's what the numbers say. Instead, start to ask some questions. And, you know, I, I, I really, I try to use analytics to help us ask our scouts questions. So if I see something that, that doesn't match with the scouting report, what we should be doing is asking our scouts, hey, this is what we're seeing on the numbers. You know, why are you seeing this? Or vice versa. And trying to get a feel for what's really happening. Because all of this stuff is supposed to paint us a picture. And if you just use one, you know, one color on your picture, it's going to be pretty boring. So, um, you know, we, I, I think the hope is to try and gather as much information on these players as possible because we're trying to predict future performance. And that, that's really what we're all trying to do. And you can't just do it with 
one piece of the puzzle. It's just, it's impossible. So, um, you know, I don't know if that was answering your question with a specific example. That's great. It's a great example. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad you touched upon fielding because as, as you've just sort of acknowledged, it's one of the kind of harder, still more difficult things in baseball to quantify. But we've at least, you know, there has been some attempts to do that. And obviously, you know, we're, 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 it, there's still a lot of work to be done. But that kind of like reminds me of kind of what you were talking about earlier in the show in terms of you know kind of what you guys are looking for at the at, at the draft and and kind of like in the early part of your developmental process, which is you know kind of for lack of a better term mental resilience, and that says to me you know that's the type of kind of characteristic that you're looking for in all these young athletes that has has to be both difficult to kind of evaluate from the analytical side as well as the scouting side. And so do you kind of do, you know, when when you're looking essentially for mental resilience or whatever kind of property it's going to take to that's going to allow these like, you know, young athletes to kind of move up the rankings towards major league, you know, play, um, you know, how, how much is that like, is there any analytics involved in that? Or is that entirely you're just like kind of leaning on like really good, kind of scouting like people with 30 years of experience looking for mental you know resilience yeah in, in terms of the draft um you know it's about talking to people and trying to, to you know and talking to the kid and talking to his parents and trying to understand who he is i think once we get him in the system it's it's our job to have a, a staff at the developmental level um that has the ability to really get to know these guys um you know at the end of the day they should know our players better than anybody. And so when we see a guy struggling and we call, you know, the manager in, you know, Asheville or, or in Hartford and say, Hey, how's this guy doing? I know he's in a little bit of a rut. You know, if, if we're not hearing on the other end, Hey, you know, we're working on it. He's doing okay. He's not, he's not pissed off every day. He's coming in and getting his work done. He's trying to get better. If we hear that, that's great. Um, you know, when we hear, Hey, this is, this has been really tough. Like, you know, we're seeing some some defensive you know errors. We're seeing again the signs. We're seeing, you know, the work isn't happening right now. And you know, then we know that that there's some there's some question there. Um, and sometimes it doesn't even show up until the major league level, to be honest with you, because these guys, they're super talented ones, are just so good that when they struggle, they don't struggle for a long time. And so we don't see it until the big league level. Wow. And then wow. once they get there. You know, then it, then things change once you get to the major league level. All of a sudden, you have, you know, there's there's financial things. There's the stigma of being a big leaguer and then going back to the minor leagues and get sent down. There's all kinds of things at play that that mentally guys have to be ready to handle. Um, and you know, I, I think a big part of it is creating trust between the player and your organization in, in general. I think if our players trust the Rockies and, and know that we care about them and that we have their best interests in our hearts and that it's real um, when they struggle and we come talk to them about it, then they should know that, that we are, um, you know, we're doing it for the right reasons. Right. And that it's not, not personal. And, and, and it's about all of us wanting to, to get to the same place and that we're going to take, and you mentioned that we're going to need, you know, more than that 25 man roster to get there. Zach, let me, um, let me ask a follow up to that specific point, because it's something I wonder about sometimes from a distance. How I believe you care about the players and, and yet you have to make these business decisions about them. Mm -hmm. How is it that you can simultaneously 
you know, tried to try to breed in them commitment to the organization and sacrifice for the organization and understand that the loyalty that you, that you have to them and you want from them. And then you have to sometimes, you know, deal a guy at the deadline or, or you know, at some point it is a business decision. So how do those two things sit together? You as a, as an executive with a, with a major league franchise, how do those things sit together? It's, that's probably our biggest challenge. Um, it, it's true that, that, we have to make those calls, and for us, it's tough to do that. We don't, you know, over the years, we haven't made a lot of trades of, of sending away our young players to, to bring them help. Um, the last couple of years we had, last year, you know, we went out and got Pat Neshek and John Lucroy at the deadline, and this year we went out and got O from Toronto. And um, But, you know, I think, I think a big part of it, you know, from the get-go, the players have to know that you care. And we, you know, I, I don't want to speak for other organizations, but I will tell you that we truly do care about these guys. We want, we believe that, that you know, if, if they trust us and if they understand that we care, um, they're going to be better players for us. And um, that's the type of people we try and hire. Those are the type of people that we try and draft. Um, that's the type of organization we're trying to run. It, that, that kind of dichotomy of, of having to make a, a business decision I think the players tend to understand when that time comes. Um, but when we sit in the room and talk, I will tell you that it's difficult for us because we do care about these guys. When mm-hmm. we talk about trading away three prospects for a reliever to help us down the stretch, you know, as much as we know it's, it's the right thing to do for the major league club, and that's ultimately what we're all trying to do is win at, this, at that level, it's, it's tricky because – you know, we we know these kids, and we you know we want them to, to succeed. And um, you know, we put a lot of time and a lot of effort into each one of them. And you know, I will tell you that trading them is, is difficult. We oftentimes get you know you'll have coaches or you'll have people around the organization that aren't real happy that you traded the guy because right. of that relationship and their belief right. in, in those kids. Um, but you know, that's part of. But there's only three ways to acquire players in baseball, right? You can, you can buy them with, with cash and free agency. You can trade for them or you can draft them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we don't have the most cash. The draft only happens, you know, once a year, and those kids are really young. And so sometimes you do have to go out and trade for players. And um, that's part of our job is to, to develop our young players to succeed with the Rockies, but also to provide us value if and when that opportunity comes to go and improve the major league club, but it's not easy. I mean, it's, you hit on a, a really real issue there for, for us. Um, and it's something we, we debate over and over and over. I think one of the things we really try and do well over the course of the year, though, to make that easier is to have those conversations over 12 months and be ready with, Hey, these are guys we would be comfortable moving for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it could be, it could be talent reasons. It could be, the stuff we've already talked about that we don't believe um, in their uh, ability to be mentally strong or uh, we're not sure they're going to be able to handle what they need to be able to handle at the major league level. Um, and as you get to know these kids, because you, know, you can do a lot of work before the draft. It's, it's really, really difficult, right, because you haven't lived with them. But once you get to know them, if you spend time figuring all that stuff out, then it's, you know, it's something that you can, you can go into the trade deadline saying, okay, these guys are talented, but, you know, in, in order to really succeed at the major league level, they may not have that, that kind of X factor. And so this is a list of guys that maybe we should work from. And, and I'll tell you, when teams come asking about guys that aren't on that list, 
guys that we really believe in, yeah. then it becomes even harder. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you but, said, no, you I got know, these other guys. How about, aren't you interested in these other guys? <laughs> well, no, but that's how trades work. It's no different than fantasy football. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of hilarious. I tell my friends this all the time, friends that don't work in baseball, like the, the trade negotiations are, are not a ton different than when like <laughs> your buddy calls you and says, hey, you know, you should uh, you should trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. I know he's only played six games, but give me Tom Brady uh, because this guy's never lost before, and um, you know he tries to talk you into it. And right. You're sitting there going, yeah, maybe he's got some, you know, maybe he's right. I could be buying low here. Um, exactly. You know, it's, it's just a, it's it's funny, but you know, it's it's very very difficult for us that we. In order to compete, we have to have young players come up here and contribute for us. Yeah, so right. trading them away is really difficult. Right, um, Zach. Real quickly, yeah. just here at the end, you, you talk about the trading, and can you talk about the relationship between general managers or wh- whoever it is that's on the phone mm-hmm. for these trades? Do you, how important is it that they actually trust, in some sense, the guy on the other the other end of the line? And how how much difference does past transaction affect current transactions? Uh, a lot would be my my. I'll answer that question first. I think it affects it a lot. Um, the relationships are, you have to trust. Um, it's, there's, there's a lot of conversation going on about players um, and not just trading names, but, you know, the, the relationships. I mean, if you, if you actually sit down and analyze it, you can see who trusts who right. in the league and who has good relationships with who because certain teams tend to make trades with certain teams. Zach, what does um, trust mean? What does trust mean in this environment? Like, specifically, I hear that said, and I believe it. But like, why do I need to trust the GM on the other end of this thing? What is it that? What is what risk am I bearing? I mean, to some extent, people would say it's well, negotiation. I mean, of course, he's going to try to get you. So, what is it that trust means there? It's not about the get you. It's about the you know because of all the things we talked about with these players being human beings and, and that type of thing. It's important that as the negotiations are going on, that that it's important to us anyway that it not get in the media until it's done, um, that, that we have the ability to tell our players they've been traded before the media oh, tells them they've been traded. Okay. Um, and if you, if you actually look back at, at the Rockies over the last, you know, since Jeff took over the last four years, um, I don't think you will find a single trade that was in the media before we were able to, to actually let our, our guys know. Okay. Um, that's one thing. You know, the, the other thing is medical information and being honest about where a player is with his health and not hiding something that, um, you know, may or may not affect his ability to perform. Okay. Um, those, those things are important. And I, and then I think just knowing that when, when two people say, okay, look, I know we've both been talking to, you know, other teams about other deals, but look, let's, let's do this. This actually, this is a good fit. Right. Both people can say that and know that, okay, it's time to focus now on making this trade and we're actually going to do this because making trades with major league is really difficult. Um, bigger clubs have, there's so many factors involved. So it's, it's really, really hard. And once, once two teams say, okay, look, we think we can, we can pull this off. I think it's trusting that, that they're honest about that and that they're not at the same time doing the same thing with another club right? because it takes a lot of time and energy. So everybody is canvassing and, and looking for the best deal and, and you should, but at some point the two parties say, okay, let's go. Yeah, and that's good. That's the moment I think when you need to, you need to be able to really trust that, okay, if I'm going to put aside these other things, it's because there's true intent here to actually right. get a deal done. Right. I'm not going to get shopped at the last minute. Yeah. Zach, we have to let you go, but we really appreciate your taking time this morning to join us on the show. And we wish you the best, not just with the with the series, the, the pirate series you have going on right now, but with the race going down to the wire here the next couple of months. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Zach Rosenthal.
He is the assistant GM for baseball operations out there in Colorado with the Rockies. He's been there about 13 seasons. Got a big portfolio handling all kinds of responsibilities for those guys. That is three quarters of this week's Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Katie Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, good friend, faculty colleague, and collaborator here on Wharton Moneyball, Shane Jensen. Always delighted to spend a little time with Shane in studio or out. Adi and Eric will be back in a future week. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us. Matty Dad, standing by for your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. That's an especially good way to reach out. If you're hearing a replay, if it's not 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday morning, this is a replay that happens four or five times over the course of the week. But you can also email us during the show. We're happy to take that happy to take that email during the show. Add us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall. Give us a question. Give us an opinion. Give us an over-under, which we're going to roll into here in a minute. Just off the phone, that was a fun conversation with Zach Rosenthal, GM, one of the GMs out there with the Rockies. Fun business those guys are. Yeah, in. no, and it was. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like we've talked about it a lot on the show. It's, it's kind of cool to sort of hear about sort of what the what kind of the organizational philosophy, what things are look, people are looking for, like kind of early in player development and stuff like that. Because as we sort of talked about in the first half hour of the show, you know, baseball does kind of stand out from some from most of the other sports in terms of you know the time that it takes for like you know kind of a, a talent that you you know. A, a particular person to be associated with a team to actually performing for that team at the highest level. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a really kind of, it's, it's I, and I, and I mean, I think from an analytics point of view, not, there's a lot to be done in that particular player development, you know, thing, but I mean, just as a casual fan, you must be kind of fascinated by the kind of the player development in an organization. I think especially when you appreciate how many hundreds of players they yeah. have in their whole system and how long it takes to grow them and that, that it's not just a plant a seed and see what comes mm-hmm. up. Um, there's a lot of cultivation that happens and yeah. um, it's a fascinating process. Does talking to someone like that change your, does it increase your interest in the Rockies? Will you look at them a little differently? Yeah, no, I, it does actually. I mean, like for example, I, I mean, I mean, this is, you know, I, get, I, I should follow baseball more closely. I did not realize, for example, that Kyle Freeland has, like, you know, one of the lowest ERAs in Coors Field kind history. of home field hit yeah, history. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, no, I mean, I, I, I find myself – I mean, of course, I'm very engaged in um, the AL East race and how well it's going as we currently sit here. Um, but, frankly, you know, the AL – in general, is a little bit less compelling, at least as far as playoff races yeah. go, compared to the NL. The NL is—I've yeah. been fascinated. I've been kind of more closely fostering an interest in the National League this season, anyway, just because it's so compact in terms yeah. of the standings. Yeah, I mean, almost a, every team's still in it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're talking about you know nine. I did not 10, expect the Phillies to be teams. winning the NL East division really, right now it's either. Just it's just crazy. It really, it really is all remarkable. Yeah. All right, around the rest of the world of sports, we're. It feels like we're just out of a major golf championship, and we're rolling into another. Mm-hmm. This, this seems like a shorter window than usual. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but between the British Open just a couple of weeks ago, we have the PGA Championship yeah. this week just outside of St. Louis. Will you pay any attention to this? Yeah. Thing? A little bit? You'll yeah, it, yeah. Like if it's tight on Sunday, you'll turn it on? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Okay. I'm almost always watch the majors on Sunday afternoon. Right, That's like right. uh, kind of a fun time. I mean, because, you know, I, I, again, 
you know, I have certain players that I follow more closely than others. Who? Who do you uh, like? Well, t- uh, back in the day, Tiger. What about uh, you? Now? Got me all excited Tiger. about Jordan Spieth. Yeah. By the way, yeah. thanks good, for that. Good Texas kid. Hey, yeah, and I mean, like around. he's still in it. No, he's like right. 14 years old. He's got yeah, a lot yeah, of golf. Yeah, no, that's right. So Jordan Spieth, I guess, is the guy I follow the most closely of of, of kind of the current contenders. Well, where do you assuming think assuming Tiger's not considered a current contender? Well, those two guys are at the same odds. Mm-hmm. Where do you think they are on the board? One out of the top, whatever. Where do you think Spieth and Tiger are sitting? I would assume they're. I mean, given that they're close together, I'm going to pull Spieth down. I would have said Spieth was top ten, but I would guess not if he's kind of come on. You know, everyone overbets Tiger. Tiger's always oh yeah, okay, yeah, all right, sure. I I would still say like uh, not top ten, but top twenty. Well, they're seventh on the page. I'm not sure that that's seventh on the board or not. But Matt's saying yeah, so that's seventh. So okay, so that's a little higher than I thought. A little higher when Jordan hadn't done much lately, but he's still sitting there with Tiger at plus twenty two hundred. So, you know, you know, 4% chance, something like that. Dustin Johnson's at the top of the board. Rory, mm-hmm. who had a good open over there at Carnoustie, yeah. is right behind him. Justin Thomas, who wins basically any tournament that he enters, is, is right behind that. Then Kopka, we've talked about Kopka being one of the guys, if you run the numbers, yeah. if you, treat, you try to bring your best analytics to it and ask, do some guys play better in major tournaments than, than others? Right. Is there a, is there a do they step up their game? Who steps up their game the, the most? Anti-Greg the anti Greg Norman is what you're talking about here. <laughs> you know, I don't is that true? <laughs> no, I don't even know. Well, I should run the numbers on that guy. I mean, Greg what? Norman was my favorite golfer growing up. I followed that guy's career a lot. I always and thought so he was really the coolest. Felt, you and, but but the you know class. like that those mass like some of those masters letdowns and stuff like that were were yeah. rough. Yeah. Were rough. So Jason Day, Ricky Fowler, they round yeah. up the top six, and then Spieth and Tiger come in there at seventh. So we have a major. Don't forget that. Just because we had the British like yesterday doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we don't have the PGA. We got one, our final major. It, I mean, and do we know enough about kind of the course and stuff like that to sort of say, like, you know, are the, uh, like is there is there anything about the course that would suggest a, a handful, a different handful of these guys than we would have? Otherwise. You know, they, they say that 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 is tight. That mm-hmm. uh, that straight off the tee matters a lot. Yeah. I, I think that stuff often, even when well, I mean, true, we certainly thought too much. Yeah, that's right. I mean, prior to the British Open, we thought it was going to just be absolute chaos, like score wise right, and weather wise. It was so hard. It was yeah, going to roll yeah, yeah, forever yeah. and all that stuff. And it wasn't. It wasn't quite as yeah. chaotic as you expect. But the PGA. One of my favorite things about the PGA. We took a while to figure this out. It's kind of the, it's the least re- regarded of before, mm-hmm. but also it kind of has the least prestigious winners list, mm-hmm. and you're kind of sometimes disappointed late in the summer when uh, somebody you don't know wins this fourth major. What's the best explanation for why that happens, Shane? Think of the most boring statistical explanation you can come up with. I don't know. The stars are tired by the end of the summer. <laughs> That's not a statistical. Well, no, okay. You went psychological on me. It was the opposite oh. of what oh, you were supposed statistic- to do. I, I- just yeah, I mean you're just increasing variance of the field or something like well, that. It's yeah, the big, biggest field. They have the biggest yeah. field, and so that's. Yeah. The, I mean, more people out there. You know, golf's not a strict meritocracy. I mean, no. it's a lot of variance of what happens, and so the more guys trying, yeah. you're going to have a much higher chance of someone you don't know winning the thing. Okay, so PGA just outside of St. Louis coming up this weekend. Another big thing that's going on in sports I've got to hear from you about Shane is that the Premier League starts this week. Yeah, I think. Tomorrow or Friday or Saturday, they, they and usually you're, play you're, Saturdays. You keep this going, right? You're committed Friday? to sort of like maintaining because my, I, my I, enthusiasm for the for that's soccer. right. I mean, I am. I mean, I I got as enthusiastic about this last World Cup as I've gotten about the previous ones. Um, 
and not yet in my life has that translated into a kind of <laughs> continuing enthusiasm, uh, enough to follow soccer sure, at the league think, level. I would think you'd be one of these guys who'd roll out of bed on a Saturday morning, go to the local British pub, and drink a pint while friggin' you know Chelsea plays or something. Yeah, no, that sounds I, like I, shame no, to I mean, me. th- that's right. That part of it, like the the, the kind of. Weekend, 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 day m- drinking, morning drinking. Yeah, the morning drinking is, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, heck, I, I, I was like out in uh, Vancouver for a conference recently, and I'm like, and I was, you know, at brunch, and there was already baseball on. So you automatically at 11 a.m. I'm like, this is great. You reflexively I should move to the West Coast. I could be watching football at 11 a.m. No, seriously, but, that is a plus from the West um, Coast. Yeah, and if I could, I, I yes, I mean, there there are certain. Lifestyle-wise, I feel like uh, kind of involvement in soccer would be great. I just somehow can't. Do you not have a Premier League team? I yeah, thought, Liverpool. Liverpool. Liverpool is my Premier. Why, why, why is I it? I don't that know. Among, I, I mean, a disproportionate number of my friends around here like Liverpool, and it's not all connected to each other. Yeah, I mean, mine's a bunch of stupid reasons. When I, when I, I mean, the year. Like maybe it was like maybe it was the last World Cup or maybe it was eight years ago. When, whenever I decided that I was going to at least try to get into English Premier League soccer, I'm like, well, I got to pick a team, and I can't pick a good team because that's going to make me look like a front runner. <laughs> You're right, you know. And Liverpool was not a good team at the time. I think this was back in like, like the, the Manchester things. United, Chelsea, yeah, blah yeah, blah blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So those guys were out. Um, Manchester United see, has some kind of. You know, I don't know if we really want to go down this route at all. Has some kind of affiliation with the Yankees, so they were out anyway. Well, I mean, um, the, Liverpool has an obvious affiliation with the Sox. Right? Yeah, does it, right. not, does it not come from that? It must have come from that. Or how long? That, that, owned- that was part of it. The Beatles were part of it. <laughs> it was. I mean, you, you're. I, I hope all our listeners are getting insight into just how arbitrary this pick was. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going. I'm running with it now. Okay. Um, if Liverpool, if I ever get into English Premier League for real, and Liverpool has this run, I'm going to have to come up with a way better origin story than that. You do need a better origin story, this but is um, but anyway, yeah. So they're my team um, for what that's worth. I think they they look pretty good this year, just based on kind of you know betting odds and stuff like that. But I would not have a lot of. Well, we just saw them in Champions League, yeah. but that means that was last year. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's so right. and they they made it all the way to the final. Now they barely qualified for Champions League this past season. Is that right? They came in fourth. Do I have that right? Okay. So the favorite, the, the runaway favorite for the Premier League title this year is Man City. Yeah. Um, I haven't been paying long enough to, attention to know, like, is this more NBA-ish where we say the Warriors are the favorite and we can just go to sleep now and give them yeah. the trophy? Or is this more hockey-ish where we say, I don't even care who well, won the Well, I mean, we do season. at least, we do have within recent memory that crazy Leicester City run where they yeah, were like, exactly. you know, like, Six hundred to one odds, or something like that, right. to win it all. But th- so um, is that? But I think that happens less often. Like I, I think it is. I would guess. I mean, as far as sort of like you know, quote unquote, the champion of the whole thing, predicting that at the start of the season must be aided substantially by the fact that there's not this kind of randomness-inducing playoff to the whole enterprise, right? Right, for sure. It is right. really no, just, just straight out. Yeah. Uh, a straight-up round <laughs> robin. Everybody plays each other the same number of times. So, for example, the Washington Capitals would be really happy yeah. if that's the way they, de- uh, they decided NHL championships. Exactly, Because it, exactly. They, they kept on winning exactly. their best season record yeah, and yeah, yeah. getting knocked out in the first or second round. Yeah, that's right. They fixed that problem, but finally, it took them a long time to do it. 
Um, all right. So who do we like? Who do we like going in? So the, the favorites are Man, Man City. Is I think big. Liverpool's going to make a run. Man, Man City is like minus one hundred and fifty. Liverpool yeah. second. Man United third. If you look at the rankings, and the change in rankings actually pretty substantial. So there, are, it does seem like the top teams do move around quite a bit in this. I mean, you asked a more substantial question, I think, in the sense that, like, you know, are there, you know, how probable is it that some team comes out of sort of nowhere with with, with the with the English Premier League? Well, I really kind of ask it because of that Leicester City yeah. experience. Yes, but, but, but know, I, if, I think that was just very rare. It okay. was very rare, even with you know, you know. If it, I didn't have so many friends that are Liverpool people. Yeah. I mean, I got no choice in who I pull for when it comes to me wandering into a Premier League world. I got to pull for Liverpool, and that's fine. Yeah. But I think I think if I were, like, making eyes at someone, uh, uh, another team, like romance a little bit on the side, mm-hmm. it'd be uh-huh. Tottenham. But tell me tell me about that. Tell me about that club. What does that make me if that's the club that kind of, I'm kind of intrigued by now? I, I mean... I'm asking you, but I'm looking at Matty, Matty yeah. D. Matty D could tell us, could you give us a rundown there? But Tottenham, people talk about they're both, they both have money and they're smart. You know, it's okay. like the Red Sox of the Premier League. And All some right. of these claims have a lot of money, but they're not doing things very sophisticated. Yeah. Some of them are sophisticated, don't have any money. And Tottenham, I think, is one that has, has both of those things. No, and I mean, I mean that's, it's interesting to hear because, you know, I, I would guess that soccer or English Premier League specifically must be kind of at the... ML, it doesn't sound like they're quite the MLB no, level where you MLB. actually have to be smart with the analytics and you, that yeah. where you having money helps, but you have to be actually smart with it. Yeah, no, they're not to that stage yet. They can just buy players, especially yeah. these gazillionaires who apparently don't need money and they're just having right. to spend wherever they need to get players. All right, let's turn this into the final stretch. It's Warden Moneyball's over under. Shane, I've got a few over unders for you. I'm going to. Use our usual routine here where we ask you something. Yeah. Some of these come from the Internet. Some of them come from our producer. Get your thoughts. You know, we, we want to know your over-unders, but we want to know your thinking behind it. We're going to take you to some happy places, you of Pat's fame. <laughs> so how many division wins? How many division wins for Jags, Pats, Eagles, and Vikes? These were the four teams that made the championships oh. last year. They were the final four. NFL yep. final yep. four, yep. basically. Yep. Jaguars, Patriots, Eagles, and Vikings. Across those four teams, how many division titles will we see this year? Two that's, and a half. We're setting it at two and yeah, a half. Yeah, that's a good setting of the because you know I really am kind of torn between two and three. I don't think I don't think all four. I think there's at least one of those teams that probably just will. You know, either be met by a surprise that's, challenger or that's what, a weak. You know. That's a weak. That's a weak answer. That's the least you could say, man. And so, hey, hey, I'm, so I'm getting over? to it. <laughs> I'm getting to it. You're warming up to a strong. Okay, so Pats will win. So that's an automatic, okay. right? Okay. Um, and because right. of that automatic, I'm going to lean more towards three out of the four. Okay. You know, because well, the Eagles, I mean, I, I, Eagles and Vikings, I think, are kind of coin flips. Like, I think in in, in either case. You know, e- easily they could be challenged within the division. Green Bay looks good. I, I think Dallas is going to be pretty good this year. Um, but the Pats being the guaranteed one, essentially, and listen to me. But, I'm, you know. I'm, I'm, you're talking yourself into over it, even though you're not giving a lot of evidence to support it. Evidence? I, you want evidence? <laughs> the Pats have won, like, every year. I'll give year, you one. Forever. I'll give you one. Okay. But the two and a half is the bar here. Yeah. No, I understand. I understand. I'm going under. I'm going under You're pretty, going pretty under, hard, really? So, so I much... have to prove to you that the Vikings nah. and Eagles can both win their divisions? Just, 
joint probabilities, man. You need both of those things to happen. Yeah, no, that, that's right. They have to both win their divisions. Yeah. Um, I, I, there, there's so much turnover in football. I mean, we have division winners all the time, you know, come up bottom next year. We yeah, I just think the Eagles divisions. and Vikings are kind of – here, here's mm-hmm. – I'll make an argument. The Eagles and Vikings are you, two top teams that I actually think have improved this offseason. That's hard to do. Yeah, they both improved a quarterback okay. this offseason. That's this is true, but you know I've heard it said that if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. I've heard that cute side things. <laughs> have you now? Well, I don't know how to break the work that into my over unders, but I'm going over. I'm going over, and I All feel right, like it's under. by now a very well justified hey, over. Matt, we got to start a spreadsheet. We might as well start. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we're uh, start honestly, I, I don't think I don't think we should do that because I think it would look very poor for me. <laughs> I am terrible at these things. Spreadsheet begins now. Admittedly, terrible. Spreadsheet begins now. Okay. Okay. Uh, changing sports to MLB, but staying in the Northeast because I know who I'm talking to. The number of games the Yankees finished behind the Red Sox, mm-hmm. they are nine games back now, which is more than they were this time last week. I think a little something happened. Over yeah, the yeah, no, that, it's it's been it's been good. <laughs> so this was a race up yeah. until relatively recently. They're going to play six more times between now and the end. Yeah, of the it's year. it's still a race. It's still a race. Red Sox have lost these kind of leads like with a month to go before. Okay, so we're going to set the over at nine and a half, oh, which man. is just a tick, half a tick yeah. below where it is now. Nine and a half behind the Red Sox, over or under? Oh, I think it's a, it's going to be a close race. I, I think I think the Yankees will finish the season closer than nine games to the Red Sox. I Definitely. think this is a canonical answer from someone who's ahead. They hedge it a little bit. They're very happy to well, get. Why it. do they? They're not hedge saying it? we're going to lose. They're going to say, "Oh no, it'll be tighter than." Am it I? Is and now. I? And I? Am I hedging it because I'm just kind of a paranoid Red Sox fan, or am I hedging it because of regression to the mean? The Red Sox have like a 700 record right now. Good. It's ridiculous. Good. it's it's, it's, It's kind of amazing to me. They've sustained it this long, but I do not believe that they will sustain it all the way through September. Okay, I'm with you on that. There's no, I mean, there's there's plenty yeah. of ways, but this is this is those two teams coming into the season. Those two teams still look very similar on paper, yep. and I think they'll be more similar in the standings by the end. Okay, now we're going to go to golf. We talked about your favorite golfer earlier, yep. and we're going to ask very specifically where Tiger Woods is going to finish at this weekend's PGA championship remember he's eighth on the big board now at, at plus 2200 so that's whatever three or four percent chance of winning the thing but we're gonna set the over under for his finish at 12 and a half yeah um can you remind me he finished where at the british like somewhere around you there know, there were a zillion guys around I mean, he was tied. yeah he was, he, like was he was 14 in there guys yeah, tied for okay, seven okay yeah, yeah yeah okay top 10 but there are a lot of them okay yeah so just outside the top 10 i think um, just inside, probably. Yeah, just inside the top ten. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna take. Uh, I'm gonna take the under. I think he's gonna finish. Look at you, Shane. Higher up. I think he's gonna better. You better. Think he's gonna better. Finish better than yeah. twelve and a half. Even even given you know as we already discussed the increased you know number of bodies kind of in this particular race compared yeah. to the British. Yeah. Um. I think. Uh, I think he's gonna do well in the PGA. Yeah. I th- I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take a better finish. You know, I, it feels it feels like that, but I'm going to short it. I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go over with a worse performance. Um, really, just kind of out of you know. There's just so much noise in golf, and and uh, also I have to pick first, and I, we've already acknowledged I'm terrible at these things. <laughs> I'm using you as just, a signal. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, we're going to wrap this up with one final question: College football. How many conference titles for 
the four playoff teams last year. This is analogous to the mm-hmm. NFL question. The playoff teams, of course, were Alabama, Washington. This was not the playoff teams. These are the four favorites. For yeah. the, this is the four favorites. Bama, Washington, Clemson, Oklahoma. These are apparently the favorites for this year's playoff. We've got to do it quickly. Two and a half conference three, titles. Three. I'm taking the over. I'm three taking the over. One of, one, of them will, one, of, one of them will be out of there, but not two. Not yet. In, in my opinion. That, uh, just based on what I think it's of college randomness. Set. It's a strong set. I'm going to go with over as well. I mean, if I'm going to rank them in order of likelihood, I can do this empirically in a few weeks. But I'd say Clemson is the most likely. Washington right behind. I think those are strong favorites. And then all you need is either Oklahoma or Bama. Oklahoma is clear favorite in the in the Big Twelve. They'd have to slip. Bama could get knocked off by Georgia, but they're also equally likely to do it. So I think three. We're both going to go over on that. We're looking for three conference titles out of the four favorites to make this year's playoffs. And with that, we're going to wrap up another two-hour episode of Wharton Moneyball. We will be back next week. Big thanks to Matty Dats, our boss man, Daniel Bruno, holding down the soundboard and with some great music this morning. Missed Eric and Adi. They will be back. Thank you guys for listening. From me, from Shane, come back and listen between now and then. Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.